This week on the show, we have OpenZFS landing with set standard in FreeBSD 13 head, so that's very exciting. We have a LibreSSL documentation status update for you. We talk about FreeBSD on Spark 64 dying slowly. Bringing Zpool checkpoints to a FreeBSD bootloader near you from Mariusz Saborski and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 366, Bootloader Zpool Checkpoints. Recorded for the 2nd of September 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode of BSD Now. We have some very, very, very great headlines as far as I'm concerned. Uh, let's jump right into it. Open ZFS with Z standard lands in FreeBSD 13. Yep. Uh, so this happened, I guess, Monday night? Yeah. Uh, so Monday night, I guess August 24th, yeah, the new upstream OpenZFS, which uh, is, you know, uh, as we've talked about before, works on both FreeBSD and Linux and uh, soon OS X, has now been imported into the FreeBSD development branch and is the version of ZFS that FreeBSD will use going forward. This unlocks a lot of new features, including uh, the ZFS native encryption, uh, allocation classes, which allows you to have a dedicated VDEV that just stores metadata or small blocks, allowing you to uh, basically make hybrid pools with uh, SSDs and hard drives. Improved uh, vectorization for RAID Z and checksums, so taking advantage of newer CPU features to do those calculations more quickly. Huge number of command line improvements, including a new mode for zpool iostat that shows latency and things like that, oh. uh, and various other improvements there. Uh, and of course, the Z standard compression feature, uh, which landed in OpenZFS late the week before. Now that version has been pulled into FreeBSD. Thank you very much to the FreeBSD Foundation for sponsoring my work to finish integrating Z standard, a project I've been, well, I guess I started on it in 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say I've been working on it continuously the whole time, but I was able to take advantage of some unexpectedly available time with the lack of conferences and so on this <laughs> year to get that finished up and integrated. And now it's available in OpenZFS and that has been pulled into FreeBSD. Basically the version of OpenZFS that's been pulled into FreeBSD is the first release candidate of OpenZFS 2.0, uh, which also branched this week. And there'll be a bunch of back and forth, I'm sure at first, as we get all these uh, integration things sorted out and as they uh, continue to finalize which features will be in OpenZFS 2.0. Yes. So there's a couple of warnings with this. So don't upgrade your pools just yet. Yes. So in particular, because this enable, because zpool create creates pools with all the possible feature flags enabled, or in this case, zpool upgrade will upgrade a pool and enable all those feature flags. Once that's done, you wouldn't be able to import the pool on a system that doesn't have OpenZFS 2.0. So that being older versions of FreeBSD or even Linux and so on. Uh, so you don't want to do that just yet because it makes it impossible to go back. Secondly, enabling those features will cause the FreeBSD bootloader to say, your pool has features I don't understand, I can't boot from it. Uh, so we're still working out uh, the final kinks there and so on. So don't do that because it's un-undoable. Yeah, so be careful. But you will be able to do it in a little bit. Just give us some time to make sure everything's smooth before you do that. It's actually interesting. One of the features we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show is you pull checkpoints. I guess technically is the one thing you can do to un-upgrade a pool. Yes, but just in case, you can try it out on a virtual machine, just install the latest head snapshot and play with it a little bit, but don't use it in production yet. This is too critical to uh, your data as, as, you, as you might be very excited about these things coming down the line and they're finally here. Just wait a little bit longer until everything is sorted out. Smoothly. Yeah, for sure, you know. Like I said, said standard started back in 2016 after the OpenZFS Developer Summit, uh, or in this case, uh, the updating FreeBSD to the new upstream OpenZFS instead of the older Lumos-based one. That project started in August of 2018. And so all this is finally coming together now, but you know, there's a lot of little things to clean up as well. And, and so 
don't get overly enthusiastic, but it is a big improvement and it will be uh, very nice. Yeah, and in the future, um, pulling down uh, updated versions makes uh, is, is becoming much easier because now we're using... Well, yes, because even compared to in the past, when we've been pulling in changes from Illumos, those changes upstream were only ever tested on Illumos. Right. Whereas now, it opens ZFS repo, every change that is proposed gets tested against FreeBSD and Linux before it can even get merged. And so it, we can trust the fact that upstream OpenZFS is always going to work on FreeBSD and all the integration work will already have been done. So it's literally just pulling the code in and billing. You know, maybe there's a little bit of work to hook it up to the FreeBSD build system, but unlike when updating from Illumos, we don't have to go through and look for places where we have to add, you know, this code only applies to Illumos or, you know, this kernel function is using doesn't exist on FreeBSD. We have to create a compatibility shim for it and extend our OpenSolaris compat layer, or this is different on FreeBSD. And so we need an if def FreeBSD block added to handle that. Mm. Now, all that's taken care of upstream. It means that the process of actually importing stuff into FreeBSD is much easier. It means it can happen much faster. Oh, yeah. Um, so if you're still on FreeBSD 12, uh, you can continue to get the newer OpenZFS via the port. Uh, and going forward in the future, there will be an OpenZFS-Devel port that you can use to get newer ZFS even on, say, FreeBSD 13. Basically, the expectation is FreeBSD 13 will ship with what is OpenZFS 2.0, uh, maybe plus one or two other things, but basically that stable branch uh, of OpenZFS. And then you will be able to obviously use the upstream uh, head of line as a port as well if you want even newer features as they come. Mm -hmm. And I expect that, you know, what the version of ZFS in head right now will get updated a couple more times before 13, uh, partly because we're trying to match what OpenZFS 2.0 is and that's not quite locked down yet. It sounds like DRAID might make it in. Oh. Uh, if you're not familiar, DRAID is for very large arrays. It's basically distributed parity RAID. So instead of uh, your typical ZFS setup where you would have, say, if you had 100 disks, you would have 10 VDEVs of 10 disks or something, right? And it meant if one disk failed, you would be reading from that VDEV, so the nine remaining disks, and writing to the one replacement disk, which can be a bit slow. Yeah. With DRAID, they're still built into those stripes, but they have distributed parity and distributed spares. So it ends up meaning you read from the remaining 99 disks and you write to the remaining 99 disks. So there's a virtual spare made up of space from all 99 of the disks. Oh. So you end up reading from every disk and writing to the virtual spare that's spread out across every disk. So you get back to having enough redundancy very, very quickly. Then when you replace the failed disk, it can do the slower resolver. But even then, it's still doing 99 to 1 instead of 9 to 1. Mm. Uh, so it makes the system much more resilient to concurrent failures and so on. Oh, yeah. It's not clear if that'll make it into 2.0 or not, but it sounds like that's the plan. Okay. Well, the already uh, coming down features uh, that we mentioned are already something that will keep people playing with it before new things come in. So I think that will be yes. very exciting. Uh, and there's plenty of room for help as well. A bunch of bits of the FreeBSD handbook about ZFS could use updates to match some oh, of the yes. stuff. <laughs> uh, even just to mention some of those new features uh, and start teaching people about them. The man pages will come in for the version upstream where they've got quite a bit of work, including being broken out into subcommand man pages. So instead of the ZFS command having one giant man page that was many, many pages long and hard to read, there's ZFS set and ZFS create and ZFS destroy and so on each have separate man pages. But there may be more work there uh, as well. And I didn't actually look to see if we made sure... We made sure the ZFS jail command survived and so on in upstream, but I don't know if it actually got the man page and so on. Uh, so we'll want to make sure that's right. And then I'm imagining the Z features or Z pool features man page that talks about which features work with the bootloader and so on. I uh, could also use an update, although we're, there's still some work going on there to make sure 
that uh, the FreeBSD bootloader will support uh, booting from Z standard compressed data sets. And eventually, possibly, you know, it's the goal, although uh, nobody's done the work yet, to make uh, the bootloader support ZFS native encryption mm -hmm. uh, so that you could encrypt your root data set if you wanted. Okay. So do you know uh, from the top of your head how many levels I can set in Z standard? Or did yes. they... uh, there's one through 19 for the positive. And then for Z standard dash fast, there wasn't a limit and it was kind of weird. And because ZFS wanted a list of the levels mm. and in the raw Z standard library, it's literally just negative one through negative infinity. Pick one. <laughs> I think eventually they did put a limit of like negative 4 billion or something. <laughs> uh, although okay. once you go past a thousand or so, the differences are so small, it's really not worth it. So, so for Z standard fast, we have one through nine and then 10 through a hundred in increments of 10. Mm -hmm. So you can do negative one through negative nine, negative 10, negative 20, negative 30, to negative 100, negative 500, negative 1000. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And there's quite a scale there, like the default Z standard level, which is three, is on the order of like three to, or, or sorry, five to 800 megabytes per second per core on a modern CPU, whereas 19 is on the order of like one to five megabytes per second <laughs> per core. Uh, can get much better compression ratios. Uh, I'm working on some benchmarks. There are some older benchmarks in the pull request link from the commit message in the show notes, but I think those are also on, on slightly older hardware, but I'm working on some new ones to help come up with the guidance you'll want for which level should I be using and so on. Mm, some recommendations, yeah. Okay, very nice. I guess people will test it on their hardware, but again, not production, not anything that's uh, important data well, on it. So you can use it in production now, just don't zpool upgrade yet. Right. Uh, mostly because the bootloader and stuff aren't, aren't sorted out. But this has gone under a lot of testing over the last uh, eight months, and it should be good to go. Okay. Yeah, so thanks to everyone who worked on this and keeps working on it. This is not just a code drop that we would just uh, put there and never work on it again. Uh, people are behind that. That's certainly reassuring. Yes, uh, this is in particular why this approach was taken to work with upstream and get this sorted this way, because it will make all these future updates smaller and easier and make sure that changes are tested on FreeBSD upstream before they're even merged upstream. And that way, if problems do crop up, we are getting the attention of the developers who are working in the area then, right? Like, uh, as we've talked about before, having people do testing on the, the development branch, basically, where, you know, when a problem crops up, it's like, hey, your commit caused this to break. If you could tell people that within a couple of days of them committing the code, they still remember what the code was about and what they were doing mm -hmm. and likely can address that issue and get it fixed quickly. If you don't tell them for six months, they're moved on doing something different and they're thinking about different code and it's much more difficult for them to go back and deal with the problem. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so we'll get probably people testing this and a couple of feedback and questions uh, in a couple episodes where people have stumbled upon things, but we'll see. Uh, so happy testing and definitely report back anything you find uh, in like the testing snapshots from head or anything uh, or the port even so that um, the more uh, feedback developers get. Okay, then next up we have news from LibreSSL because they got a documentation status update. So this is from Ingo Schwarzer, always busy in documentation land. And uh, from the little strokes to great oaks department. Oh, great. Uh, so uh, over on Undeadly.org, we can read that more than six years ago, LibreSSL was forked from OpenSSL, just a reminder. And almost two years ago, um, Ingo explained the status of LibreSSL documentation during EuroBeastCon 2018 in Bucharest. So it seems providing an update might be in order. Note this is not an update regarding LibreSSL status in general, because he's not the right person to talk about the big picture of working on the LibreSSL code. Uh, his work has been quite focused on documentation. All the time, it is fair to say that even though the number of developers working on it is somewhat, somewhat limited, the LibreSSL project is quite alive, typically having a release every few months. Progress continues being made with respect to porting and adding new functionality, uh, TLS version 1.3, CMS, uh, RSA-PSS, RSA-OAEP, these are all these encryption algorithms 
uh, XCharger 20 uh, during the last two years. OpenSSL compatibility improvements, including providing the additional OpenSSL-1.1 uh, APIs, and lots of bug fixes and code cleanup. So maintaining the LibreSSL is a challenge not only due to many questionable design choices and the obvious code quality inherited from OpenSSL, but also due to its sheer size. With roughly half a million lines of code and documentation, it accounts for more than a third of the lines below user source lib. And it's about half the size of the complete user source user.bin tree. So that is a lot compared to the other uh, software in there. Okay, so currently there are about 355 pages in libcrypto documenting about 2,580 functions, about 115 pages in libssl documenting about 390 functions, and 12 pages in libtls documenting 90 functions. So then he talks a little bit about how much uh, these changes or these pages have grown or how much percent got added. Um, so mergers of improvement from OpenSSL clustered around 2018 in particular. Before that, he was still quite busy with more fundamental tasks and lately OpenSSL development has shifted to the OpenSSL-3 branch. So the number of improvements in the OpenSSL-1.1 branch has somewhat dwindled. And he talks a bit about uh, stages of progress. So during the half decade, the improvement of LibreSSL documentation proceeded in several phases. The first being the markup conversion, so converting from Perlpod to MDoc, uh, which is the preferred um, documentation format for the OpenSSL project, or LibreSSL more like. Uh, then they uh, did mlinks removal, so the mlinks, which used to be over 2,000 additional file names created by the LN below user share man, were removed, and because their mandoc based man implementation no longer needs them. Copyright and license audit followed. Then the ASN.1 object type documentation was done. Uh, then ASN1 decoding documentation was um, committed. And libtls documentation split, so that's a separate thing. And the first attempt to start working towards completeness. That's <laughs> that's kind of a title that's, um, well, we always try to get complete, but as soon as we're there, there's more to do because the code has advanced this, one, this time. So... There's a lot more things and you can see that the documentation is quite extensive and they did a lot of work there. There's a bit uh, about uh, writing documentation, finds bugs in the code. So as uh, you go through the documentation, you kind of find, hmm, comparing that with the code doesn't match up what has been written. So you kind of report this back and they said, ah, okay, this must be either wrong in the documentation or in the code. And so this way they listed a couple of um, bugs that was found by just reading the documentation or going through it. There's a big list of open tasks. This is probably a good way to get involved for people. So that is uh, one big thing and you can read through it. It's a long list and a big article, but I'll definitely recommend you reading it because it gives you a different viewpoint of, it's not just the code, which is a big important part, don't get me wrong, but also the documentation around such a big thing as LibreSSL is another big task to, to handle. All right, our next item has FreeBSD on Spark 64 is dead. Hmm. Yep, uh, so this is over on the Yuri Linux blog. And he says, you know, this was originally going to be my January article, but I decided to postpone it in favor of another one. Uh, and so this is the February article, except for it didn't get posted until August uh, because you know, the state of the world. Mm. <laughs> uh, on the plus side, this meant I went over the article again and have improved it somewhat, and I intend to publish other articles that I missed one by one. So he goes on, after getting my hands on an old Spark 64-based Sun machine, I've written a couple of posts about the actual hardware, the installation, and about running OpenBSD and the Lumos on it. I've also hinted that I wanted to try out my favorite OS, FreeBSD. So FreeBSD on Spark 64, I'm coming back pretty late to the party because Spark 64 support in FreeBSD is apparently doomed. After the power architecture made the switch to using LLVM slash Clang based toolchain, that left Spark 64 as one of the last things still using the ancient GCC 4.2 based toolchain that the project has wanted to get rid of uh, for quite some time and finally has actually managed to kick out of the development branch. Compared to the other platforms, it's seen basically no love in recent time. Uh, most of the commits have been from people who didn't want to be working on Spark 64, but when making some change somewhere, it caused a problem with Spark 64, or having to do things to please the very old version of GCC 
uh, whereas newer versions of compilers would understand that that code is perfectly valid. He says Spark 64 was a great platform. I'd be quite sad to see it go. But before that happens, let's see what the current status is and what would need to be done if it were to survive. So it says the FreeBSD project provides ISO images for various platforms. At the time of my first attempt, I downloaded the FreeBSD 12.0 release Spark 64 ISO. Since my machine cannot boot from USB, I can't use the virtual CD drive that I typically do. So I went old school and actually burned a, a CD. Then I prepared everything and turned the machine on. It started booting, but before even reaching the installer or anything, I witnessed something completely unexpected. Uh, and you can see the output from the serial console, where you see it detecting the real-time clock and the serial console and the time counter. And then it says, power failure detected, shutting down now. <laughs> Oops. And he's like, wow, what's that? The FreeBSD uh, thinks that the machine has a damaged power supply and immediately shuts down, giving me no chance to actually do anything. Now that it was less than impressive, this is when I decided to try out OpenBSD instead. That worked well, and the machine ran for a couple of days compiling OpenBSD, so the power supply is definitely fine, and I don't know what's happening here. I did a little research, and it seems that some models fire an interrupt. That means the power supply is damaged with other models. OpenBSD seems to know that this is bogus and ignores it, but FreeBSD does. So he looked at rolling his own ISO. He says, okay, so what to do now? We have a defunct OS, but we also have a string to look for. So it's not hard to find that under sys spark64 pci psycho.c. <laughs> he says, I don't know C and thus cannot uh, implement new features or do a real debugging of any sort, but I can comment stuff out. And since this is a false alarm, that should be sufficient. So I got rid of that check that ruins boot for me and saves the file. Now, one of the things I love about FreeBSD is the build system. It's so easy to build the OS or even cross build it. So it was as simple as doing, going to the source directory and saying, make target is spark 64, target art spark 64, build world, build kernel. This cross built FreeBSD for spark 64 on my AMD 64 machine. But how do I get this onto my Sun machine? Fortunately, there's a pretty interesting directory under the source there called release. The makefile and scripts here allow for the extremely easy creation of installation media. Uh, so it should be just one or two more commands and we'll have an ISO. So in the release directory, he did make CD-ROM, no package, no ports, no docs, no source, and target is Spark64. And then it will build a CD-ROM ISO for Spark64. Okay, that sounds good. So I did a little work on that and got that sorted out. So the first surprise for me, the installer is missing the option to install on ZFS so I have that I've become so used to. It looks like ZFS can be used, but the booting facility for Spark64 does not support booting from ZFS. Uh, there are no pre-built packages available for Spark64. There used to be up until about a year ago, but now it's building everything from ports. So after building Tmux, I decided to upgrade the system. Of course, there's no way to use FreeBSD-update either, so it's also compiling from source. So I gave dash current a try, but the old GTC 4.2 in base cannot build that. Eventually, I settled on using 12 stable. Uh, compiling it takes uh, many hours, but it worked without a problem. And there you see why Spark 64 was removed from head, because all this code we were importing for things just can't compile with really old GCC. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure even OpenZFS code would have had trouble trying to compile under old GCC. And he said, uh, anyway, after rebooting, my system doesn't come back up. Uh-oh, what's happening? Connect to the serial console, and I see, oh, I, I forgot to maintain my patch for psycho.c, <laughs> and it was detecting that interrupt of what the power supply. Uh, fortunately, I can just boot kernel.old instead, do that, fix it, recompile the kernel, uh, and so on. Uh, while editing the file, I noticed that I did unnecessary work before. Turns out there's actually a sysctl that can automatically turn off that setting. So just setting hardware.psycho.powerfail equals zero in loader.conf, and now an unmodified kernel works just fine. You can even do this at the boot prompt, and I didn't even need to roll my own ISO. But it goes to show just how easy it is to do on FreeBSD. Now, having a fairly fresh system, I go back to exploring ports again and run into problems. The default version of GCC on FreeBSD is currently 9.2, but that version is broken on Spark64. GCC 8, 7, and uh, 4.8 work and can be used to compile software, but the latter needs the port edited, though, as Spark64 is not listed as a supported platform. 
GCC 6 is also broken after the latest minor release. Because again, upstream GCC isn't supporting Spark 64 anymore, it seems. And he says, while the PowerPC platform recently moved to using LLVM and Clang-based toolchains, Spark 64 is still stuck with the ancient GCC that's only in FreeBSD 12 and earlier. For such projects, FreeBSD has created a path forward using an external toolchain uh, as the base compiler. You have, if you have a look at the user ports base category, you'll find two ports, binutils and GCC6 in there. And a wiki page gives an overview of how you can take the many steps of the various platforms to use those. So I built the binutils and GCC packages, installed them, and broke my system. As I found out, the base ports actually replace some components in base. So after installing, it's no longer binutils 2.17.50 but the much more recent 2.33.1 and GCC 6.5.0 instead of 4.2.1. Uh, the latter, however, is broken, so that makes make install world for my stable system. I had to do make install world again to get it back to working. So what to do next? Well, uh, current is where the exciting stuff happens, so I've got to get that onto my machine somehow. The native er, the native way is blocked, so I have no idea how to fix the compiler. But then, what about cross compiling? So there's a package called spark64-xToolchain-gcc available for my AMD64 machine. So installing the cross-toolchain is about as easy as it gets. So let's try to build FreeBSD with that. It takes a while, but of course finishes uh, much more quickly compared to a native build on this old hardware. Uh, so the next step is preparing a release and we ran into some problems here where it looks like LD was crashing. Fought with that for a while and other bits trying to cross compile kernels. And he says, uh, trying to boot up the kernel resulted in a panic quite early in boot, but after getting this far, I didn't want to just give up now. So I filed another bug report and the problem was in fact solved really quickly. With that fix, the kernel was able to boot uh, further only to hit another panic. Fortunately, the second one was sorted out almost instantly as well uh, with the same bug report. Having a working current kernel booted up felt just great, but what about the user land? It was also broken in multiple ways and did not compile. While it took me days to figure out all the breaking commits, reverting or otherwise fixing them, for testing purposes, I ended up with a patched used land that did successfully cross compile. The downside of things was that every single resulting binary that I tried would just crash. At this point, I hit a dead end. I submitted one final bug report, but as nobody had any suggestions for me, that was game over at that point. So goodbye to Spark64. When I learned that FreeBSD was about to drop Spark64 support, I hoped that I could step in and help it uh, in keeping it alive. This proved to be an illusion as obviously nobody with a deeper technical understanding than me had any real interest in this platform. I admit uh, being deeply disappointed in January when Spark 64 was dropped, but because it was dropped, or not because it was dropped, but because it ended up being dropped earlier than planned. Although admittedly, I would say Spark 64 has been on the chopping block for five years or more. It had it coming. Yeah, uh, it was mostly a matter of the mechanics. Mostly it was, it had only survived this long because it wasn't that much work to maintain, but as it got to be more and more work and, you know, more and more little things breaking every time you tried to work on something not related to Spark 64, it just outlived its usefulness. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, they said maybe a little bit more time would have helped to keep it in. Uh, maybe it wouldn't. It's like, well, it was on borrowed time for a long time. Uh, and lots of people have, I've tried to help out a little bit, but you know, you'd need five or, or more people working quite hard in order to keep it alive. And without support for a modern tool chain, it was just getting to be pretty iffy. And the comparable small user base. But it's probably a good thing that I didn't get around to publishing this article until months after the events. Uh, I'd especially like to thank Ed Mast, Mark Johnston, and Baptiste Dresson for merging fixes for the most obviously doomed platform, as well as others from the team who were helpful about it until the end. FreeBSD on Spark 64 failed to survive into FreeBSD 13, but the effort that was made uh, show how much of a professionally developed OS FreeBSD is. So let's put Spark 64 to rest uh, in dignity. The team has uh, stated that support over the lifespan of the 11 and 12 stable branches Will be done as best effort since it's already gone in the head branch especially 12 will live on for quite some time still uh, so i'll try to continue doing things with my sunfire server 
until the curtain falls sometime after 12.x. And by that time, all the hardware that was ever supported on the FreeBSD version of Spark 64, which was not all Spark 64 hardware, will all be quite old. Mm. And as we've uh, mentioned before, sometimes the right answer uh, to that really old hardware is to run the really old version of FreeBSD on it. Yeah, forever. And just keep it, and it, it can still do work. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's... Well, it's in, in particular, you know, if, if you're on one of the platforms that was deleted in, uh, after FreeBSD 10, then maybe FreeBSD 10 is the right version of FreeBSD hmm. for what you're trying to do with it. Trying to use newer stuff is just going to make the machine feel that much slower because it assumes the hardware is a little bit bigger by that. All right, it's time for the news roundup this week. And as we already hinted on, we have uh, Marius Saborski returning to blogging, which we liked very much. So we feature his article, Bringing ZPool Checkpoints to a FreeBSD Bootloader. Yep. So he says, almost two years ago, I wrote a blog post about using checkpoints in ZFS. I didn't hide that I was a big fan of them. That said, after those two years, I still feel they're an underappreciated feature in the ZFS world. So I decided to do something about that. Currently, one of the best practices for upgrading your operating system is to use boot environments. They're a great feature for managing multiple kernels and user lands, and they are based on juggling which ZFS dataset gets mounted as your boot file system. Each dataset has its own version of the system. Unfortunately, boot environments have their limitations. If we, for example, try to upgrade your ZFS pool, we may not be able to use the older version of the system anymore. A big advantage of boot environments is that they have very good tools around them. The two main tools, uh, BADM, which is maintained by Vermidin, and BECTL, which is now part of the FreeBSD-based system. And these tools allow us to create and manage those boot environments very easily. And the boot environments are also extended into the bootloader, so you can select one from the bootstrap menu. Another way you could choose to do upgrading your box is to use ZFS Snapshot. In this case, you can snapshot all the data sets in your system. If something goes wrong, then you can just roll them back. I use this for upgrading databases and a lot of other tasks not necessarily related to the operating system. Before the upgrade, uh, you create a snapshot, then you do some SQL to change the schema or whatever. If something goes wrong, you simply roll back the state of those data sets. This technique is very handy, but also has some subtle nuances. For example, if you add some data sets or remove them or upgrade the pool during the upgrade process, none of these operations will be rolled back. This is why Zupool checkpoints are so interesting. They are not based on a specific data set, but basically is a whole pool snapshot. Thanks to that, we can roll back the, a pool upgrade or the creation or deletion or rename of a data set. Uh, that ability can be very handy in complicated upgrade processes. The Zpool checkpoint feature was actually invented at Delphi specifically for doing appliance upgrade. Mm -hmm. Because they have a database and they have to change the schema, they actually rename the database out of the way uh, the data set that holds the database, rename it out of the way and clone it and then oh. apply the schema change to that and so on. And, you know, their, their upgrade script is quite complicated. It has many, many steps. If it fails in the middle, trying to manually undo those steps and figure out how to put everything back was really complicated. Whereas snap, uh, basically creating a checkpoint of the whole pool, try the upgrade process. If the upgrade doesn't go perfectly, you just roll back to the checkpoint and throw away the broken upgrade. It's, it's much nicer. Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, so the way this works uh, from an implementation side is a ZPool checkpoint remembers the uh, last transaction group. Like when you create a checkpoint, it basically flushes a transaction group and saves that one and basically locks it. So normally there's a, a little ring buffer of ZFS transaction groups. And when you boot up, it finds the newest one where the checksums all match and boots that. This copies one of those off to the side and keeps it over there and allows you to keep going normally. The other thing it does is stop all freeing. No space is ever freed on the system ever while a checkpoint exists. Uh, because, you know, that transaction group number that we saved might point to data that you, if you, you know, if you destroyed the data set, uh, we need you to not overwrite that space. So we just never free it. Yeah. Um, so another caveat is that you can rewind a checkpoint only when a pool has actually been imported. This means that if you have a root on ZFS, uh, we will not be able to rewind it when the system is running. Uh, we are also unable to rewind it in single user mode because the pool will already be imported. Ah, right, sorry. You can't rewind to a checkpoint once the pool is imported. You basically rewind as part of importing. So if you're booting from the pool, you have the problem of once you're booted to be able to run the command, you're already using the pool, so you can't rewind. So 
that's where uh, the feature Marius worked on comes in, which was, can we boot from a separate file system and rewind it, or what can we do better? What he did was basically added an option to the bootloader to say, hey, during boot up, before you actually, uh, so when the kernel goes to import the pool, you tell it, hey, rewind to this, this uh, checkpoint. So with the post here, you can see ZFS gives us lots of options to securely upgrade our operating system, including boot environments, uh, snapshots, and checkpoints. But with all great features, you also need some tooling and help. Otherwise, they're just great features. And that's why Marius has been working on getting the support into FreeBSD. Okay, that's great. Yeah, definitely people uh, should try it out. Be careful. It uh, might uh, never give you your data back. But in case you have uh, an important upgrade procedure to do and want to make sure you get back, uh, that's the way to go. And having a separate checkpoint and a snapshot might be a good option to have separate fallback steps. Yeah, definitely a nice way of securing your system for the inevitable. All right, we should jump into the Beastie Bits right now because there are some funny things in there. Uh, we have, for example, the first Unix port. Yes, the first port of Unix uh, from the Department of Computer Science at the University of Wollongong, uh, which I'm almost 100% sure is in Australia. Uh-huh, yep. And oh, you can see the typing uh, from the typewriter here, these pages. Ah, that's classic. Is uh -huh. there a date here somewhere? I'm not sure, but at the the closing comment, I think is a good one here. Uh, there's no better way to summarize the first port of Unix than quoting Dr. Doug McElroy, the head of the Unix research group at Bell Labs, who said, we here at Bell Laboratories are truly dumbfounded when this visitor from an unknown school in Australia reported his elegant procedure and remarkable success. Our own people took considerably longer to move Unix to the uh, interdata machine, not because they are not as clever, but because they had a different objective, a portable Unix rather than a Unix port. But I think uh, they'd have blinked before undertaking the heroic effort that Richard Miller did, and he did not even have a Unix computer to port from. Oh, yes. This looks like a great bit of history, although, yes, it would have been nice if it had uh, <laughs> a date on it. Yeah. Yeah, the picture at the end is kind of nice, and the, the paper, the technical session says... Uh, June 17 from 1998. So yeah, uh, definitely good history and well worth reading. I wasn't into computing uh, way back when that uh, show well, in uh, 1998 that came out. Was, but uh, not back when this was happening, no. <laughs> not into deep into Unix as I am today. That's definitely uh, a given, yeah. So next up, we have also interesting news from our... Um, well, at least my one of the favorite authors, Michael W. Lucas, TLS Mastery updates from August 2020. So Michael has been busy staying at home and writing. So he writes that solar systems form out of vast clouds of particles and gas. So you're thinking, where is this going now? Uh, modes of dust aggregate drawn together by their own minuscule gravity over innumerable aeons. Those aggregates creep near other aggregates, eventually colliding into heavier masses and their combined gravity draws yet more matter. A cosmic observer with a really compressed sense of time would see nothing happen for millennia. Then there would be a huge rush as all this matter sucks itself together and becomes so heavy that the innermost atoms are compressed into involuntary thermonuclear fusion. It looks quick, but most of the progress is invisible. Writing this book is a lot like that. <laughs> so he has used TLS and SSL for decades. He has debugged an error, uh, found errors, and battled bogus certificate chains. He has screamed at the vilest obscenities at SSL labs for daring to expose uh, his weaknesses. And like every other sysadmin, has doused browser developers in kerosene as they slept and set them on fire. Well, I had a, uh, he had a good working knowledge of TLS, but writing about it demanded a deep plunge. So, the book is about a quarter written. Uh, there's definitely uh, some weird things happening going on. Uh, the book will be definitely a very nice uh, one. And uh, you can still uh, donate, or not donate, um, sponsor his work for this book. And there is also a couple of interesting covers out already that you can take a look at. But definitely read about the full uh, blog post from Michael W. Lucas and... Uh, 
make your eyes peeled when the book comes out because it's definitely a worth buy, I would say. And then we found a YouTube video about what is the oldest BSD distribution still around by Monolosh. I kind of, <laughs> for a second, I was blinking into, into his uh, FreeBSD nickname. But yeah, that's Monolosh talking about the oldest BSD distribution still around today. And that's a video that he made and it's certainly interesting to watch. So I recommend you do that. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, online backups for the truly paranoid. It's a very simple service. It's prepaid pay-as-you-go. So you just deposit five or more dollars into your account and start backing things up. Basically, create a secret key to encrypt your data. You keep that secret key safe and don't let anybody else have it. And with that simple step, you ensure that everything you back up can only be restored by you. Yep. All the data is segmented, deduplicated, compressed, and then encrypted and signed on your computer with your secret key. Then it is sent to the internet and then you're able to get it back later. But it means that nobody at Tarsnap, nobody at Amazon, nobody anywhere else on the internet can open that encrypted data unless they have your key. So as long as you keep your key safe, everything is fine. It may sound like a bug, but it's a feature. If you lose your key, the data is gone forever. That's on purpose. Sometimes you need to be able to say, all right, I, I want those backups to just go away. I can't trust that just deleting it from Amazon is going to be good enough. They have backups and so on. So what I can do is destroy the key and make a new one and I'll make some fresh backups. But I know that all those old backups cannot be opened by anyone at all now because the only copy of the key has been destroyed. Yep, and not even the Tarsnap folks can recover that because it's on your disk and never uh, should leave it. Exactly. Uh, you can pay for Tarsnap using Stripe and PayPal, so that should be the best option for most people, using credit cards, of course. And uh, you can find more details and documentation, of course, on the website, tarsnap.com. So check it out. And there's certainly a Unix distribution as well as Windows and Mac OS that uh, supports Tarsnap. The BSDs, all the Linuxes out there, or the most common ones, will be supported. And there's even the source code available, so you can compile it yourself and make sure nothing is in there that shouldn't be there. Exactly. It's uh, the most important part of any backup system that claims to be secure is the fact that you can see the code that's going to run on your machine. Because it doesn't matter what the code that runs in the cloud looks like, because based on the code on your machine, you can make sure it never gives the secrets to the cloud, and that's all you need to know. Yeah, start making backups using Tarsnap today and be on the safe side. All right, we are into the feedback and questions for this week. And we've gotten feedback, uh, ZFS feedback, but it shouldn't be the only feedback. Well, we love ZFS feedback, of course, but you can send us other questions and comments, show notes, feedback, anything you like to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then it will be featured in a future episode. Uh, this week, we start with Ben. He has a ZFS sent question. Ben writes, Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Thank you very much for your excellent show. Thank you for that praise. Uh, would you be so kind to answer ZFS question? Yeah, just this one. Or two? Yeah, okay. Uh, all related to Debian 10, sorry, no problem, uh, with ZFS 0.8.4. Okay, so first question. Could you please confirm that it is not possible to send or receive a whole pool when it's encrypted? So here's an example. Does a snapshot sends this along to a different system and receives it there? And then he gets, cannot receive new file system streams, ZFS receive dash capital F, cannot be used to destroy an encrypted file system or overwrite an unencrypted one with an encrypted one. Yeah, so this can work if you if your receive location is pool name slash something, um, but not the root. I don't know that you can normally encrypt the root either, but it's mostly, yes, the fact that you cannot overwrite an unencrypted file system with an encrypted one or uh, destroy one and replace it with a different one. Uh, because the encryption key for a dataset can only be set when the dataset is created because you can't change the key after because that would require rewriting all the data. And that's not possible in ZFS. Um, so you can only receive an encrypted stream when you're doing, uh, you can only set the key when you're creating the dataset for the first time. Uh, and so that's why in this case you would receive that uh, replication stream into, you know, 
my pool slash backup or something that doesn't exist. And then it would recreate the whole thing in that sub data set. Mm. Normally, I don't think you would have your encryption root be the root of the pool. Uh, if that's allowed, that's maybe something that shouldn't be because it leads to this situation. So likely what you want to do is when you're laying out your pools from now on, is you have your pool slash encrypted or something. And that's the one where you set the encryption root and then all your encrypted file systems live under there. And you can always use the mount point property to arrange where they're going to get mounted and so on. And then you can easily have your encrypted and unencrypted stuff separated and be able to handle the replication this way. Okay, so the second question is, I know that there are many very good auto snapshot auto send tools, like for example, Sanoid and Syncoid, but I like simplicity and I'm thinking about very simple cron job that would run, for example, every morning to back up my server. And there's an example. Uh, the first problem is that the script doesn't remove old snapshots, but since it will run only once a day, it will create 365 snapshots a year and I can set up some monitoring for free disk space and remove old snapshots manually when needed. The second problem, is that I'm not sure if it's cool to use always the dash i, uh, lowercase i, but it's uh, not that I can do something like, ah, yes, to prune that thing. Right, so when you do a ZFS send with a lowercase i in the name of a snapshot, that's the starting point of your incremental replication. If that's always the same one, then it means if you're doing the replication every day, if you start on Sunday, well, it won't work the first time, but anyway, uh, so if you start on, if you did it manually on Sunday and the cron tab runs on Monday, it's going to send the differences from Sunday to Monday, and that'll be fine. But on Tuesday, it's going to send the difference from Sunday to Tuesday, which is going to basically resend the Sunday to Monday changes unnecessarily. Not that big a deal, but once you're 100 days into the month, you're sending 99 snapshots you've already sent before, and it's probably not that helpful. This is one of the hardest problems with ZFS replication is that you basically have to go look on the other side, find what the newest snapshot is, and use that as your incremental starting point. Uh, and I see that you have a little bit of a script to, to do that there. Of course, that assumes that you're not creating snapshots on the other side, but that's probably right. What you have there is probably okay. You might actually want to specifically add to the ZFS list command you're using there, add the dash S flag for sort and sort by the creation date so that you get them sorted by the creation date, not by the name. They, they generally will be in that order, but it's better to be sure. You could also use, I think, the capital S flag to reverse sort so that you could do head instead of tail. Uh, and this mm. would allow you to avoid ZFS having to go and get the list of every snapshot. Instead, just, you know, I just need the first line. If you give it, the, ah, you already have the capital H flag, so it's going to emit the header or not emit the header line anyway. So hopefully that answers your questions. There are some relatively simple scripts for ZFS snapshot that are not much more than what you have there. But then you have your options like uh, Sanoid and Syncoid or ZREPL, which just had a new release that includes automatic resumption. So ZFS send and receive has a resume option for if the transfer gets interrupted. But I think ZFS or uh, ZREPL, its new release is the first one to actually automate using that feature to resume a broken replication. Okay, yeah, that's an option to look into. But yeah, I like the approach to keeping it simple, but especially with, with backups that you're probably doing this way, you want to make sure it works. But yeah, thanks for the feedback and the question. Uh, Lars writes here, um, Hi guys, I'm a listener since episode one and still love the show. Oh, great. We never disappointed you, apparently. Good. Um, I have a ZFS pool upgrade question. I just read that when you upgrade a ZFS pool with zpool upgrade dash lowercase a and you boot from, you have to upgrade the boot code as well. With gpod boot code, blah, blah, blah. Um, my question, when is a ZFS mirror of two disks, do you have to upgrade the boot code on both disks or just one disk? Thank you in advance for answering. So you don't have to upgrade it on both disks, but you want to. Mostly so that in sometime in the future, if the first disk were to fail and the BIOS tries the second disk, uh, it will have boot code that will work. Uh, that's you know the most of the point of your mirror, right? Was to make sure that if one of the disks failed, the system can still work. So you're going to want to make sure the... Uh, the boot code is up to date. One caveat about the command that's outputted there, that command assumes you're booting GPT in legacy mode. If you have EFI, partition number one that you're overwriting there could be your ESP directory, and running that command could end up clobbering that with the legacy boot code instead, uh, which could also mess up a setup if you had something like refined multi-boot operating systems or something. In fact, I think that advice is possibly missing now as part of the import of OpenZFS, and it's a good time to 
uh, improve the messaging about that as well. Yeah, so that people know that they should actually do right. it. So instead of giving them the actual command, we should point them to some documentation that will help them decide what is the right command for their system because even on FreeBSD, there are three or four possibilities depending on how you set up your system. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so ZFS, if one disk has the boot code, it will not automatically mirror it to the other disk. It's a separate step that you have to do. Right, because those are outside of ZFS. Yeah, so that is important to remember. And so yes, the answer is that you do want to upgrade uh, the boot code on all of the disks uh, so that no matter which disk the BIOS decides to boot from, uh, if one of the disks fails, it has working boot code. Mm -hmm. Okay, hope that answers your question. And now we get to Neutron. And Neutron writes, Hello, JT, Benedict, and Alan. I have been downloading, installing, and using BEADM for a while now, mostly out of habit. I recently found out that FreeBSD ships with something similar called BECTL, included in the base install. My question is, can an argument be made, other than familiarity, to keep using BEADM, or should we just scrap it and start using BECTL? TL from now on. Uh, so BEADM is still useful because it's just a plain shell script and works on older versions that don't have BECTL and so on. As far as familiarity goes, uh, BECTL was very specifically designed to be equivalent so that the same commands would just work and it would feel familiar to people. BECTL is growing a bunch of new functionality very soon, uh, including uh, control for temporary boots. So you can say, boot this new boot environment, but only once. So saying, allow you to test uh, an upgrade, and if it doesn't work, you just power cycle and it reverts to the old version and so on. And extending support for Nextboot, an old UFS-based utility that allowed you to say, I want to try kernel.new next time, and I want, you know, one boot only, I want these extra loader.conf variables loaded, and so on. Currently, there are sometimes advantages to BEADM during the transition period, or if you are using the OpenZFS port. So if you're on 12.1 and you're using the OpenZFS port, BECTL can't work with that right now. It only works with a version of ZFS that's built into FreeBSD. So on head, that's now OpenZFS, but on 12.1, the fact that BEADM uses the command line tools rather than the library has some advantages. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the long term, I'm guessing that uh, BECTL will make more sense uh, because it's built in and it's tightly coupled with the version of ZFS that you're running. Yeah, so you have some time to transition, and uh, yeah, at one point. And the transition is easy because the command lines are basically yeah, the same. That's one of the reasons uh, it's so easy to switch. Okay, uh, let's hope you make that switch eventually, and uh, that pretty much wraps up this episode of BSD Now. Again, if you have any questions for us, then hit us on feedback at bsdnow.tv. You can also give us a like on Twitter, and we're also on Twitch now, I hear. Yes, if you go to uh, twitch.tv slash bsdnow, uh, you can watch the live stream there. Okay, that's for the people who still want to see our talking heads. Thank you for listening, and until next week. Bye.